This episode is brought to you in part by Dr. Tony Evans, author of Kingdom Kindness. Learn how to become a countercultural force by reflecting God's kindness. Find this and other uplifting resources on Amazon.com or wherever books are sold. Welcome to the Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to the Table. We discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. And we are continuing our discussion on gender dysphoria and understanding and ministering to people who are who are of uh, mixed uh, gender background. Uh, and my guests are Tim Yoder, who is Associate Professor of Systematic Theology here mm-hmm. at Dallas Seminary and teaches our course on ethics, and Gary Barnes, who is Professor of Counseling here at Dallas Seminary, has his own uh, family practice as well. And this is really part two. Um, the earlier portion we examined kind of the perspective from someone who walks into a situation uh, and meets someone who comes out of this background and just how to minister to them. Today we're going to focus on the person, him or herself, in terms of how to, what they are going through and, and how to understand the experience uh, and the tensions of that experience. And I want to begin, Tim, with you, and that is to ask, uh, before we talk about a specific issue, it's probably worth it to take a step back and frame and ask, you know, what is it that's asked of Christians in general as they're interacting with people, particularly uh, in a situation where the initial sense might be there's something there's something different going on here. This person is coming from a very different place than I am. Okay. Well, very good. I think the um, the contribution of Christianity to uh, to ethics and to personal interaction, as you talk about, can really be summed up in a word, a single word, and it's love. Hmm. And that might seem like uh, a cliche or something that's actually sort of simple. But it's it's really rather profound. Um, in ethics broadly, most of the great ethicists focus on things like law or duty, um, or uh, or maybe virtue um, or pleasure. In the case of utilitarians, and those all have their place and are interesting. But one of the things that that I've observed that's interesting about the Christian perspective is that is that Christian ethics brings the idea of love into the picture. Um, Jesus tells us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then to love our neighbors as ourselves. And it seems to me that those represent the two foundational um, commitments or principles of, of Christian ethics. We we have we have to to love God. There is this human to God relationship that's that's necessary. I think that's I think that refers to salvation, the gift that we receive through Jesus' sacrifice. And then, secondly, we need to love each other. And love means love means more than just um, judging clearly or um, or holding people to a standard. Although I think that those things are have their place, but love involves mercy, love involves forgiveness, love involves sacrifice, um, and uh, and so that's that's really in many ways our our um, guiding principle. 
the person of Jesus, one more point, one, uh, the person of Jesus, he was a great ethicist and he uh, laid out tremendous standards for ethical behavior, but he also interacted with people in a, in a gracious and loving and merciful way. And when we look at Jesus, we don't see him as only someone who says, do this and don't do this, but also someone who was um, gracious to sinners and, uh, and, and, and showed love and mercy to individuals. And I think we have to, we have to find a way to, to mirror that. Now, uh, two, two things a leap to mind as I'm, as I'm listening to you. The first is uh, that usually ethics is about, <laughs> if I can say it this way, ordering your life mm-hmm. in one way or another. That's why there's the movement to law and to those kinds of concerns. Exactly. But what I'm hearing you say is next to ordering and, in fact, a priority even in relationship to ordering, is the relational dimension of what Jesus calls us to do. You know, what you cited has been called the Great Commandment, and I like to say the Great Commandment is great because it's great. I mean, it's it's a priority, and it it really is a significant – it is the most significant orienter because our relationships – uh, are are important and and scripture the the fruit of the spirit is primarily relational. Mm-hmm. There are all these hints right. in scripture right. that how we interact with people is as important as how we see the world. Mm-hmm. To bear one another's burdens, to to forgive, to to forgive seventy times seven, to weep with those who which weep. is a lot. It, it is a lot. <laughs> yeah. It is a lot. Yeah. Um, by the way, these are the very things that that Nietzsche found so distasteful in in Jesus' message in the New Testament, and 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 so he proposed this wild ethic of of power, mm-hmm. the the overcomer, the ubermensch that's going to uh, rule the world by power, because Nietzsche saw in these expressions of love and sacrifice a weakness that he just. That he detested. Okay, so and and just for people who know Nietzsche is one of the uh, examples of a completely different model of, of ethical right. approach to That's life. Right. That's right, and an anti-Christian, right, at his core right. in the nineteenth century. Uh, so, Gary, uh, we've 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 said in here many times uh, that. Uh, Interacting relationally is really uh, core in one of the most basic things we can do. I think you talk about the relational lab. I'll let you develop yeah. that a little bit. What do you mean right, when you right. use that phrase? You know, the relational lab is, is where we really get the truth. Uh, that's where we get to really see how the tire's hitting the road, mm-hmm. how it really works out. So I have my theology, mm-hmm. but then I have my operational theology. Mm-hmm. And it's my operational theology that's going to be in action in a relational exchange. And when we talk about this kind of intellectually, we'll, we will talk, well, now we're moving to application. But the, the danger of thinking about it just kind of in that raw, abstract way is that we pull out the very relational elements, or we risk pulling out the relational elements that are really central to making the application. Yeah, we're we're not really working with the full package when I'm only working with it theoretically or abstractly. Mm-hmm. See, and in my relational lab is where I really get to see what is it that actually drives my responses. Mm-hmm. So it becomes my my relational interactions becomes like a Rorschach ink block that mm-hmm. kind of is a projective test that really shows me what's really there. So it's my awareness opportunity. Mm-hmm. See, I often say uh, when I'm alone, 
uh, I could be a spiritual legend in my own mind. Mm -hmm. But in my marriage Mm -hmm. relational lab, Mm -hmm. uh, that's where the truth really shows itself. (laughs) And your wife really knows. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We won't go there. Yeah, that's another. That's that's exactly (laughs) right. That's all by itself. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So, so um, let's. I'm. I'm gonna. I I struggle with the terminology at the beginning of this, and and the reason is is because terminology does matter. So let's talk a little bit about terms. Uh, transgenderism, gender dysphoria, and then whatever else should go in that slot. What, what, yeah. what, what? Why are are the terms chosen? Why are those even important? Uh, terms are important because we attach meanings to terms, mm-hmm. and we can even have the same terms with different meanings being attached to them. Um, and so we have to we have to be very clear about our terms, and then even go a step beyond to to see really what what are the particular meanings that are being attached to it. So there's framing that takes place, not just in the term that I use, but even how I how I see that term functioning. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. So 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 let's go through them one at a time because I think I I think this is actually an extremely important discussion because all these terms are getting thrown around today and people mean all kinds of things by them. So uh, let me start with probably the one that is most popularly used, um, but uh, but may have issues uh, problematic issues tied to it. The term transgenderism. What's what's the issue there? So uh, transgender is actually your umbrella term. It's the biggest, broadest mm-hmm. term. It's, it's the one that kind of captures most of what people are going to be talking about. But there's actually topic. a big bucket, so there are lots of things that go in it. a big bucket, yes. Um, and so you, you could say that there, there's many, many different ways of expressing uh, gender identity. Um, and what's in interplay here is the expression of gender, which is actually a psychological, social, and cultural aspect of being male or female, Okay, as we're also considering the biological sex. Okay. And so it's, it's the interfacing of these. So we're, so we're dealing with, with multiple angles simultaneously in some ways in terms of the, you know, there, on the one hand there's the biology, if I can say it that way. Right. On the other hand, there's the whole issue of orientation and practices, which are, uh, f- I-, I-, I will say, generally a little more fluid in terms of how they operate and how people view them. So that when you talk about it being socially uh, a social element to them, some practices that are defined particularly as male or female are, are culturally defined as opposed to being mm-hmm. uh, Essential to being male or female. A simple example: we tend to equate nurturing with something that's female as opposed to being male. But actually, all people nurture in one way or another. Yes, exactly. And, and so, so, so I, I think the thing that can be maybe be most helpful as a starting point for people is to say, let's talk about biological sex mm-hmm. as not being equal to gender. Okay. And if we think about gender, let's think about that as the psychological, social, uh, and cultural experience of being male or female. Okay. So 
that might line up mm-hmm. with biological sex. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, it does, mm-hmm. but that might not line up. And it's with the mis- it's, it's when we get. I'll say it this way: we get significant misalignment that we've got issues that come up. Yes, and and the expression of where it's not lining up is the bigger umbrella of transgender. Okay. Um, and, and so, is <laughs> a terrible question. Is it a good term, a bad term, or a term that we just need to understand? Um, well, it's it's uh, it's loaded with opportunities for confusion. Okay, I'll just say that. <laughs> okay, <laughs> it sounds, sounds threatening. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, okay, so so. And yet, we we it, it is probably the most popular term in discussing this area. Yes. But the problem is, is that it actually, rather than being helpful, can actually fog the discussion in one way or another. Is that is that the point? Depending on the meanings people are attaching to. All okay. The terms. All right. Yeah. I mean, I it sounds. I think it's intended to be a relatively neutral, descriptive yes. term. But because it's such a challenging and difficult issue, people hear it and interpret it. They have their, they bring their own connotations and. Uh, ideas to it, and therefore it, it becomes loaded in the way you're you're talking about. And so maybe it's not quite as descriptive as it could be because people attach meaning. And, Nor is and, it as neutral as it exactly, appears to be. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. That's the bigger problem. Okay. Yeah. So 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 let me come back to another point that you were making, which is to distinguish between between uh, biological condition I'm, I'm, I'm working to find ter- words mm-hmm. here that are neutral uh, biological condition and social practice and that because for some people biology is everything or the perception is that biology is everything what makes that equation problematic because there are exceptions mm-hmm. there are anomalies mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, do we have? Uh, I, I hate to get statistical here, but it's but it's probably worth doing. Um, do we have any idea as to what kind of percentage we're talking about in in this kind? Because I do think this helps people to think through this a little bit. Yes, um, the prevalence rates, however, are. Wide ranging, okay. so we we don't have exact mm-hmm. because. But there's a range. These are estimate yeah. rates depending on different samples and and so uh, some of the rates that we hear are based on people who are actually pursuing clinical services mm-hmm. who are experiencing gender dysphoria. Okay. So for males, that, that can range anywhere from 1 to 10,000 to 1 to 13,000. Okay. So it's, a, it's, it's less than 1%. Oh, by a long shot. Okay. Yeah, yeah, uh, a long shot. But it's there. Definitely there. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, and in some cases, we're, we're now. Are we talking about? Uh, how can I say this? Are we talking about people whose whose biology is also, uh, for lack of a better description, mixed or unclear, or chromosomal conditions that also that, are? That's, that's another the, possibility. Okay. Uh, the term there that's being used is intersex. Okay. Okay. So that's where there are anomalies just within the biology itself. Okay. 
So that and and frankly, that's important to note because that is that is an example of a, an exceptional situation. That's almost another from the, exception from the yeah. start. Okay, so um, we we didn't define one other term that we do need to talk about. So let me go back and collect that before we press on with numbers, et cetera. And that is gender dysphoria. What do we mean when we use that term? And that okay. So if you take the biological sex, mm-hmm. and then you take the psychological, emotional, social mm-hmm. experience of gender, mm-hmm. and those are not congruent with one another, mm-hmm. the experience of that incongruence would be described as gender dysphoria. Okay. Now, uh, the next question that, that naturally follows, I think, here is is that when we were talking about numbers, were we talking about the number who qualify or who are discussed or are viewed as, as a gender dysphoric, I guess is the phrase? Yeah, that's what I was saying. These okay. would be adult males who were actually seeking service as a result of their experience of gender dysphoria. Okay. Now, is the number different for females? Because you yes. mentioned male. Yeah. So females, the numbers that we have are 1 to 20,000 to up to 34,000. So it's less Less. common, actually, among females than for males. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, Now, all this is important, obviously, because what it means is is that there are people for whom – and we talked about this last time. We talked about we live in a fallen world, and sometimes things aren't as as neat and clean as as one might think. so, um, so what these numbers indicate is, is, is I guess the is this the big box if I can say it that way? In that, one of the questions that I think is emerging as we talk more about um, these kinds of situations is is that people are pulled in to these conversations who may not have, for example, the biological ambiguities. That um, that would be a clear evidence of of a mix, um, and so how does how does that fit into this equation? That reality. So you're saying, are are you asking, are there subgroups like there's there's a incongruence with biology, right? And then there's another subgroup where there's an incongruence between biology and the psychological, social, and cultural. And the fact that we're talking more about this—that's yes, but let me fill it out. The, um, the fact that we're talking more about this is that it brings more people into the mix of thinking about: Am I in this category or not? They wrestle with where they mm-hmm. fit in the spectrum of things. Yes. So the the other thing that's very important mm-hmm. is not only the prevalence rates because those are based on adults. Those numbers were based on adult male and females seeking clinical services. So so they're recognizing gender. something and seeking out the need. Yes. Yes. Okay. See. So there's another whole group, and we don't know what the number is of okay. people who are experiencing a dysphoric experience and incongruence that have not sought services. Okay. So we don't know what those are. And that, and they're and <laughs> they may be sorting it out either very privately or seeking right. help from someone who they might know but may not be professionally exactly. equipped so to do how, it. How do you know what those numbers yeah, exactly are? Exactly. All right. So so now, there's no- another uh, complicating factor uh, okay. too. Okay. And that this is what we would refer to as persistence rates. Okay. So in other words 
if you look in childhood and adolescence, the numbers are going to be much higher mm -hmm. because the persistent rates are very low into adulthood. Interesting. And that has to do with just the whole, if I can say it this way, a teenage experience of just determining your own identity and where you fit in the world and all that yes. kind of stuff? Is that it's, what's it's generating a, that? It's a process of a, over a long journey. Okay. Okay. So. And so because you experience early <laughs> uh -huh. gender dysphoria does mm -hmm. not mean that you know what you're going to be experiencing in adulthood. Okay. Fair enough. Now, there is a reason why we why I've brought together someone who teaches in theology and someone who teaches in counseling into this conversation, because I do think that sometimes we think these two things kind of run into each other to a certain mm -hmm. degree, you know, that the mm -hmm. theologian is operating from one angle and is looking at this in one particular way, and the, and the counselor is looking at it from another kind of way, and so they're kind of in conflict with one another. But part of why we have done this the way we have is to show, no, there's potential for real congruence here in how we think about this, interact with it, that there is a theological ground and rationale for thinking about this alongside the practical and relational considerations that are that are in, in this. So I, so I turn to my theologian here yes. <laughs> and ask him uh, the question, tell me what you think you've just heard. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think what we've heard is is the effects of sin, mm -hmm. right? And 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 how and how it how it um, affects our human nature, and that affects all of us, exactly, exactly, just in different ways and in different places. Because because of the presence of sin, because our nature natures are fallen, because total depravity is is true. Therefore, there it's going to show up in our world. Our, we live in a fallen world. Our the the world itself. Um, and and how we feel about it, and so um, so we're going to experience these anatomical uh, incongruencies, the intersex condition. That's a part of the fall. We're going to experience um, differences, uh, uh, incongruities in how we think. This dysphoria. That's part of our, our thoughts, our feelings, how we understand. It. We're going to go through um, phases and periods in which we're going to struggle with uh, temptations. We're going to be. We're going to have. Trials that are present to us, um, and uh, and that's part of what it, what it means to live in, in a fallen world, and uh, and so part of our theology has to be that we have to be ready and ex expect those sorts of things. It's you know there are no perfect people. There's uh, where we are save Jesus, and we are um, so we're going to expect these sorts of things, and we have to be prepared to to deal with them. Okay, yeah. so so. Um that sounds rather challenging. Well, um, it is, and, and so, uh, so let's let's think about. So we've so we've got this this group. It's it's not a large group, but it's a real group. Mm. Very real. Yeah, very real. So let's talk. Not about so large as the media might let lead us to believe mm -hmm. it is, but nevertheless. Very real. Okay, and and of course now now let's deal with the way in which um, society in general can contribute to the to the disconnect, if I can say it yes. that way. Very let, good. Let, let's go there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what I'd like to go back to what you were mm -hmm. saying earlier, mm -hmm. Daryl, about bringing a theologian and a psychologist together at the table. Mm -hmm. Uh, and the reason that I'm so excited about us being able to do that is because of the unity of truth concept. Right. All right. truth is God's truth. Right. Exactly. See? 
Now, that being said, I really want to agree with Tim that uh, we are living in a broken, fallen world as broken people. Mm -hmm. And so there's good theologians and bad theologians and good counselors and bad counselors. Okay. And good men and good women. Right. And bad men and bad women. And, uh -huh. But there's really good and bad in all of us. Right. That's right. There's not like those are the good guys and these are the bad guys. And we need okay. to also be careful that we that we don't um, – I can say it this way – declassify sin in such a way that there are these sins over here that are really a problem and these other sins over here that we don't right. need to think very much right. about. Right, right, right. But that, when it comes down to when we're talking about uh, the, the topic of the day, mm -hmm. what we don't want to jump to the conclusion of – is that every problem is a result of a personal sin choice. Right, 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 right. So, exactly. Just like if I have a uh, heart arrhythmia, that's, right. a, that's a problem, Right. but that's not necessarily a result of a personal sin you choice. You didn't choose to I have arrhythmia. In my particular case, I would say no. I, mean, I, right. I yeah. wouldn't say there's somebody who couldn't figure out a way to choose that uh, right. by um, – their lifestyle. Right, but, right. But what we're wanting to say is uh, you don't want to make the conclusion in every case that this is about a personal sin choice. Mm -hmm. Right, right. So, and, and, the, and part of the reason for being sensitive about that is because, and we alluded to this, but I don't think we brought it out explicitly, and that is one of the things that we're after in, in actually talking about this in this way is before you can you can engage well and even make an assessment about how you're interacting with people. You've got to kind of understand exactly what it is that you are dealing with. And and the way – and this brings us back to the societal question – the way in which society tends to handle this area doesn't always necessarily lead to understanding about what is actually going on, particularly for the person who is – finds themselves in, in this in this condition. And I would say not only is that true, but also um, an overall average organized church response mm -hmm. can also be misguided mm -hmm. and misdirected. Because the way in which the society at large sees things, or even the way some people talk about this theologically, may not actually line up with everything that we know, both on the theological and on the counseling side. Right. Just, just because we have a conflict of truth claims doesn't mean the theological truth claim always wins automatically. Right. right. And, and in fact, oftentimes you have to work towards the theological truth claim as opposed to simply assuming ideally it's just going to drop into place. Right. Okay. So so let's go there. This is – I feel like I feel like I'm in a dentist chair, you know, <laughs> we're slowly working our way in the root canal. But anyway, um, but but it, it's actually pretty important to go through this a step at a time and to, and to, and to think through it almost a level at a time. Um, you say that there are lenses through which yes. we should look at this that, and, and that they help us to get oriented. Let's talk a little bit about what those yes. are. Yes. Uh, 
Again, Marky, our house is, I think, one of our leading contributors to help our understanding um, with gender identity as well as sexual identity. And he's written a book called On Gender Dysphoria. Yes. Yeah. As he's written many, many books. Yeah. If you're just going to read one book on this topic, that would be the first I would recommend okay. that you go to. Uh, in that particular book, he does identify the three lenses that uh, we don't like tend to look through all three lenses. We tend to be one lens Oriented. people. Yeah, yes, right. Uh, and so um, the, the first lens that he identifies is the more traditional church lens, and, and that was could be referred to as the integrity lens. Mm-hmm. And so the very importance of that from a theological perspective, and we can have more conversation about this, is it's really identifying the theological significance of the binary model of male and female. Mm-hmm. Okay. So and, – and, and, and by the binary model of male and female, that lens often is almost exclusively seen that biology matches gender. Is that, is that part of what comes with yes, that? Yes, that there is such a thing as maleness. Uh-huh where everything's congruent, uh-huh. and there is such a thing as femaleness, where everything's congruent. And that's very important, especially as you consider being created in the image of God as male and mm-hmm. as female. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. And and I take it that the the tension in that is that really, rather than thinking about two clean boxes, if I can – I'm trying to use mm-hmm. visual imagery, what we really are dealing with is a kind of a, of a spectrum of things, and once you put the social, cultural things as a layer on top of whatever the raw biology is, um, you've actually – you actually don't have two boxes anymore. Well, you can hold on to the two-box view. Uh-huh. With, That's what with, the integrity yes. model is, right? Yes. Holding right. on to That's those right. two boxes But as I'm much trying as to actually can. push on it a little bit. Yes. Yeah, but yeah. you're going to run into some problems. Right. Yeah, okay. With that. I think that's right. And so when right. you get this in, the point is when you get to the point of incongruence, even at the level of biology, all of a sudden your boxes don't fit. You got exactly. a problem. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. So the so what you're suggesting is is that and, and I think the backdrop to this, given the numbers that we have, is is that to a degree the two boxes in most cases work. Yes. Sure. But in a few, but 
therefore significant cases, it doesn't. And then what do you do with and that? And then what do you do with that? Right. That's where we are. Okay, so yeah. so that's the integrity yeah. lens, okay? And I can count, so we've got two left. Okay, so <laughs> um, if you go to the response to the integrity lens as people are dealing with real people right. that aren't in the two-box experience, okay. they're saying, no, it's really not a two-box model at all. Mm-hmm. It's really a diversity model. Mm-hmm. And so there's a full continuum – and anything from one to the other and everything in the middle is all to be celebrated. Yep. Okay, yep. so this is the opposite of the integrity. This is going lens. to the other. other okay, yes. all right, okay. Mm-hmm. And so um, you could have people in the diversity model that would have a theological uh, model that mm-hmm. they're working from, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then you also have people in the diversity model that would not be working at all from mm-hmm. a theological model. Okay. okay. But the thing they would share in common is that these are all valid differences, mm-hmm. and they're all to be celebrated equally. Okay. Yes. Okay, and the more radical of those in that model want to uh, deconstruct the whole notion of gender altogether, and and say, you know, maybe there should be a third. There are or no middle, boxes at or all. Fluidity, yeah. right? And yes, exactly. Yeah. Now, not not everybody is that will go that far and be that radical, but that's that's certainly a part of uh, of the diversity model. And yes. again, what we're dealing with here, and I think this is important is that we've got layers going on in these discussions, almost every le- level that we're talking mm-hmm. about it. That, yes. That the, the, and the tendency to generalize, which often happens in these conversations, inevitably washes out some of these differences, which actually are important pieces of the mm-hmm. conversation. Yeah. Yes. What, regardless of what you think of them, they're there and have to be dealt with. That's mm-hmm. right. And so, uh, so in that sense, it's important. Okay, so that's the diversity model. So we've got yeah. – so, so I've got the two Two box group over yeah. here, and the diversity anything's okay right, group right. over here. Okay, so that's two. That so that leaves one. us the third lens. That's right. And so uh, this is the lens that I I prefer to use the label of anomaly, the okay. anomaly lens. Okay. And so what the anomaly position does is it holds true to the binary understanding of the sacredness. Theologically speaking, Mm -hmm. uh, significance of male and female as image bearers of God. Okay. And so at the same time, though, it's saying because we do now have a broken, fallen world where the whole world groans under sin, there are things that are outside of the design. There's things that don't match up. There's Mm -hmm. Inconsistencies, there's incongruencies, mm-hmm. and that happens in all kinds of different areas. Right, and it and it also happens in the area of maleness and femaleness. Okay, and it happens within the biology itself. There's incongruences. Uh, it also happens in the the biological sex and the gender dysphoria, mm-hmm. and so that's all a part of the real experience this side of Genesis 3. Okay, so so boiling that all down, it's taken us about a half an hour to get yeah. here, but we're we're plowing through. What this means is is that there are there is a percentage of the population that I meet that are 
that are that are the the anomaly, for lack of a better description, and they require, I'm going to say, a certain kind of sensitive care. Um, that that um, generally most of us aren't equipped to, in one sense, aren't equipped to give because we just it's it it. it the whole thing about it is awkward and kind of off kilter. Yes. So, um, so, so well, what tends to happen on autopilot? If I've been uh-huh. involved with this for quite some time now, and yeah. so I've seen patterns. Okay. okay. If you look at people that are rigidly holding to the integrity model, mm-hmm. and there's good motivations for that. You right. don't want to quickly easily compromise a sacred theological significance. And the model theory. is appropriate in almost. In, in a significant number of cases. cases. That's yes. right. Okay. Yeah. So there's, there's good motivation about let's not compromise something that's so important. Right. But at the same time, out of this good motivation, uh-huh. you can actually have a negative impact. Okay. And let me, let, me, let me frame this. You framed it one way. Let me frame it another way. I actually think that part of what's going on in the hard defense of the integrity model is they are reacting in part not to the person who may be in front of them, but to the alternative diversity model, which they absolutely reject. And, and that's the, pers- the real-life person is caught in the crosshairs. Exactly that. right. Mm-hmm. Exactly right. Mm-hmm. That's my point. Mm-hmm. So, um, which means that that, if I can say it this way, the ideological, theological, social debate is one dimension of this question, but the person who's caught in that, in that turmoil, okay, yes. is, another, is, is a, another area, and, it, and it, it's relationally demanding to balance what you're doing over here yes. in the public square with how you're interacting with the person who's caught in this situation. Exactly. And so what you end up with, if you look at emerging patterns, mm-hmm. those who are uh, holding strongly, even I would say rigidly, mm-hmm. to the integrity model have a interactional response mm-hmm. to the person mm-hmm. as being intolerant, Mm-hmm. And they would move against the person mm-hmm. or move away from the person. Okay, not towards, towards the, the person. person. Right. Okay. So so let's talk about that a little bit because we do want to. I, I do want to spend some time focusing on the person who's caught in this situation. Yeah. Yeah. One, uh, what they're what they're going through, and then two. Although this loops back a little bit to what we discussed the last time. What what is the best way to interact with a person who's caught in? In this situation, okay. Can I say what the alternative is? That's yeah, not best? absolutely. Okay. let's start so, there. So, um, we many of us, especially our younger generations now, look at this intolerance as totally unacceptable, mm-hmm. and are actually driven away from that. And their solution to that is tolerance. Mm-hmm. Which actually drops them almost unconsciously into the diversity exactly. model as a result. That's that's where you end up camping. Okay. When you when it, you make this move, it's like I don't want that, and so uh-huh. the answer is got to be this. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. It's a two model choice. Right, right, right. When there there's a a third option. Okay, so we don't. So it isn't just a matter and. and, and some of what I see, for, I'm going to describe it. It may not be the best description. Is almost it, it's it's a reaction to the intolerance, but it's also 
I'm going to say apathy may not be the right word, but it's almost a withdrawal. In other words, it's a sense of I don't want to fight. Or, I don't think anyone should be fighting over this. And so there's a just there's this pushback of saying I'm not. I don't want to engage this, um, which actually is exactly what it portrays itself to be. It's a form of disengagement that actually in the end doesn't help you very much because you don't make the effort to understand or to move into the space or to get some sense of what's actually going on and what might what might be most helpful. Um, it, I think what it does appear to many is it's a quick, easy solution. Yes. But they're not really dealing with everything that they need to deal with yeah. in that. Yeah, and that's why I'm characterizing it as a kind of apathy, because it's a hesitation to risk stepping into understanding and working on and working through what it may actually take to actually be helpful in the situation. Right. Okay, so there's an interesting um, uh, thing I can say about tolerance, intolerance. So um, intolerance, of course, leads to um, to hatred and judgment, and and, and sometimes in some cases, um, retribution. You know, the the uh, the persecution, but um, but tolerance is the idea that we should uh, just allow people to to be whatever they are, to celebrate all the differences. Tolerance is is actually always a um, an incomplete perspective. Because we, we never really can reach the place where we completely tolerate everything. There's always got to be limits to tolerance. We never – we really we, – you think about it. There are things that we will never tolerate. We shouldn't, right? Torturing babies, right? Or, you yeah. know, or, 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 or genocide or, or, or child abuse or serial rape or other I – mean, we, we can make a, lo, a, a list of, of really horrific things that should never be tolerated. So if we're going to say that tolerance is our framework – we have to recognize that tolerance is always is always limited, and therefore it's not really, in a sense, strong enough to hold how we should really think about the world. That's why we go back to the it's idea of It's not a complete working model. Exactly. Yeah. That's why something like love and mercy and forgiveness is a much it's a it's a strong it's a thicker idea that we can that we can build a, a perspective around a, the, a relational and the love doesn't float out there kind of contextualist because with no, that, exactly. be, uh, behind it there is an order and at least thinking about this Christianly there is an order in a in a and there is a design that generally does work to which you're moving towards. One of the things that tolerance does is it's such a laissez-faire attitude towards life that it allows the brokenness to continue as brokenness without being without being examined. Right. Yes. Exactly. And 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 that's a problem as yes. well. Yes. Okay. So let so we said what you shouldn't do. What so what? So I just want to stick on the the problems with the tolerance model for a little bit okay. longer here. So if you really think through the model, mm -hmm. as Tim was helping us do right there, mm -hmm. it's not only an incomplete working model, it's an inconsistent model, mm -hmm. see? Because really, tolerance is a sneaky intolerant right. position. Right. And so the, the tolerance says there's no room for truth, mm -hmm. there's no right. absolute truth. Right. But then that becomes their absolute truth. Right. Exactly. Exactly. See? And so it's an inconsistent model. Right. So the only thing it can't tolerate are those that that hold to the standards which is a, which can look like a kind of intolerance and right. so you're right so they it's another reason why it's it's incomplete and so it's in, the, in the three like lens that. model the the reason that the diversity model 
is also not working is because it doesn't allow for the significant theological truth of male and female. Mm-hmm. That's right. And, and, and it it um, it doesn't recognize how um, anomaly is something that just is is not just. Some, I mean, it's there, but it but it needs to be it needs to be uh, worked through as opposed to simply recognized. Yeah. It, it's a wrong solution to the exceptions. Right. <laughs> yeah. So um, – and, and actually we see this because we see in certain conversations that come into this area um, – uh, this, this is another point about inconsistency. Well, you know, we ought to celebrate the whole variety of what's there, but if you step in in the midst of that variety and say, well, I'm not sure there's something we ought to think about here, all of a sudden you're shoved off to the yeah. side and marginalized. So, so it's no longer tolerated. Yeah. That's excluded. That's exactly right. Yeah. So that's the inconsistency. So, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. So finally, yeah. <laughs> we get to the the person themselves, and, and one, what are they – what are they going through? Is they ex- because they experience all this turmoil, not only yes. internally, right. but they also experience the turmoil that's going on around them about exactly. who they are, exactly. which mm-hmm. has got to be um, tremendously um, challenging to it's go through. Real, it's very real, and it's not adequately going to be addressed with either the integrity model or the diversity model. Okay. See. And so, uh, and, and so, walking into the anomaly space, what do you recommend then? So, what the anomaly lens allows us to do is to be gospel people. Mm-hmm. So, you, we can hold firmly to theological truths, mm-hmm. but also understand that there are exceptions in a broken, fallen world. Mm-hmm. And because of being gospel people, we are changed by Christ who is full of grace and truth, which compels us to respond out of grace and truth, not one without the other, Mm -hmm. which frees us up to move towards someone Mm -hmm. who's different, Mm -hmm. who doesn't fit the model, Mm -hmm. who doesn't support the integrity model. Mm who is in deep pain and hurt and struggle, we can move towards that, see? Uh, this is um, – the, the motivating factor here is the compelling love of Christ mm-hmm. that enables us and empowers us to be able to do that. And so I take it that part of what that involves is actually making the effort to move towards someone and get – Get to know and 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 understand their struggle, how they're seeing the world, the things that they're up against, that kind of thing, and then begin to ask the questions: What does what does loving someone in this situation mean as you work through that? And and so there aren't going to be always, for lack of a better description, cookie cutter answers to how they're going to be dealt with. Yeah. Yes. Very much so. I think there's a, a theological distinction that, that really helps, a theological and ethical distinction that helps us here, and that is that um, between a, a, a test or a trial and, a, and an actual um, 
sinful activity. Mm-hmm. Right? This comes out of the book of Job and, and really throughout the scriptures. But certain just because we live in a fallen world, right? We we find ourselves in situations which are a trial, like Job's. Mm-hmm. Right? It, the, the the things that happened to Job were not because of his own sin. In fact, the first couple chapters of Job go out of the way to talk about how righteous a man he was. I, mm-hmm. I think it mentions it three or four times in chapters one and two. Those things were not because he sinned, but they were a trial that he. And then and then how would he respond in that trial? And I think that's what we're seeing here when people. Uh, have uh, gender dysphoria, that itself is not a sinful choice on their uh, part. It's a trial that they undergo. Now, how are they going to deal with that? There are sinful choices they could make because they're in that trial, and there are righteous choices they could make when they're in that trial. But the situation itself is a part of our fallen world, but it's not a sin choice itself. And we see that all in all kinds of situations. When, when we suffer physical disabilities, you know, blindness or deafness or, or a handicap, how are we going to act because of that? Or we could become bitter and, and, and get drunk and, and uh, you know, and lash out. Those would be sinful responses. Or we can bear up under it and, and develop maturity and character, and that would be a more, a more appropriate response. And so the, the condition itself is a trial. How we respond to it um, is really how we should be evaluated from a, from an ethical perspective. Now, uh, we're almost running out of time, so I almost hate to bring up this question, but I think we've got to pursue it, and that is one of the things that I think is happening as a part of this conversation is you have people who uh, I'm and I'm going to make a distinction here and we we can play with whether the distinction's valid or not. People who are legitimately in the anomaly category and then there are people who are drawn to the anomaly, if I can make that yeah, distinction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, they're they're not yeah. there, but they're drawn towards it, which means that even this conversation has layers attached. It to does, it. And, and and so and and let's and we haven't even talked about the whole teenage level of this, which is sometimes what you have is a person caught in trying to figure out. Where they are, exactly, and they may be in one category, or they may be in the other, and that actually makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? Yep, it's a big process. So, um, <laughs> it's like, like I said, it's a terrible yeah. question to ask towards the end. We're, we're probably going to go over a little bit, but um, but let's pursue that a little bit. So okay. you've got, so I've got a teenager who walks into the room and says or announces mm-hmm. or intimates how whatever level of mm-hmm. of of disclosure we're going to talk about that this may be where they are. Um, this what is, do you do? This is um, happening day after day with parents and youth pastors, and so they're finding themselves saying, what do I do? Exactly. Yeah. So? Okay. <laughs> so uh, we mentioned in our first uh, session mm-hmm. kind of the four-point thing mm-hmm. of uh, you can release your rigid hold onto the integrity model and still hold to the sacredness of male and female. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you don't have to feel like you're compromising mm-hmm. those theological important truths by making room for exceptions. So that's a really important first step right yeah. there that just free yourself up. 
Okay. Okay. So the assumption, and, so, and, and what I think the application of that is, and I'm going to try and translate this a little bit, is that we may have people who are genuinely in the anomaly. We may have people who may not be genuinely in the anomaly, but you don't help yourself by denying the anomaly at the start. Exactly. Okay. See, yeah. If you're holding rigidly to the integrity model, what you're going to do is everything's going to be invested in preventing anybody from leaving the integrity model. Right. Mm -hmm. So you're going to force people into you've got to be this or you've got to be that. Mm -hmm. See. And that's only going to make everything worse. Particularly for the person who's legitimately for in both. It. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, it puts pressure on both of them, but the yes. pressure might be particularly intense for yeah. the person who's really there. You're, you're not going to get your best outcome with a control strategy, okay. and, that, and that's what this is going to lead to. Good. Okay. So okay. So so I'm. I, I'm confronted with this, and I'm sorry. And so the first thing I do is I I recognize. All right. There, there's the possibility there might this might be the anomaly. This might be the anomaly. Yes, That's exactly. step one. One okay. possibility. Okay. So, so where do you go from there? So you don't panic. Okay. With that. Okay. Okay. Uh, I don't panic because number one, I'm not having to compromise on important theological truths for mm -hmm. myself, and I'm also not panicking because there's no way of knowing where this is going to go. Right. Okay. But the other reason I don't panic. And the other reason that I do my next three points is the, the, the uh -huh. point number two was these are our people, not those people. Right. Okay. Uh, and point number three is I'm going to journey with. Mm -hmm. We're in the journey. We don't even know how the journey is going to end up in terms of maleness, femaleness. But what we do know is regardless of anything, uh, we can make the focus about journeying in our identity in Christ. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then the fourth point is, I'm in that same journey too. So you're going to help me in my journey, mm -hmm. in my identity with Christ, because I got something new. I got to figure out mm -hmm. how all this works. So all of this is really important. Mm -hmm. And and so uh, we're not going to panic. We're not going to uh, hold rigidly to this. But what we're going to do is be in process with one another in this. Okay. okay. Let, let me let me try and go one step further. Um, um, we're just going to keep going because we need to play this out. There, bad because I'm going to generalize. There, so you might in the midst of the journey dis discover there really is an anomaly. This is right. an anomalous situation. Right. That's right. going to create one set of responses. Right. Right. In the midst of the journey, you might actually determine that no, there's not really an anomaly. There's just been some, for lack of a better description, confusion in terms of what's going on. That's going to produce another set of responses. Walk me down those two roads. Okay. So what you you don't want to do the the rigid integrity model, right? Which, but the answer to that is not the diversity model. Okay. And so, what treatments tend to flow from the diversity model is the minute a child or an adolescent is showing signs of being the exception, uh -huh. you make the conclusion they are the exception. that your destination is determined. Right. Yes. Right. And therefore, we need to facilitate, not prevent. Mm -hmm. And so what we're going to do is help in your social uh, transitions 
And so we're going to actually um, we're going to do things like promote the cross dressing. Uh-huh. We're going to promote the taking on of the different gender from your biology. Uh-huh. We're going to give you. Um, when you move towards adolescence, what we're going to do is um, we're going to introduce hormones, okay, to delay puberty so that you can continue to grow to the point of making this a decision yourself. Mm-hmm. Or we're just going to let you go ahead into your adolescence and puberty. And then we're going to introduce hormones that help you become the gender you feel you need to be. Okay. Uh, and then we can even move to surgical change. Right. And, and, to and, and that just process. to add another layer, what's happening legally in some states is, is that some of this is actually being mandated as to how it's, it's been being handled, which so, is a whole other layer. See, that's all based on because you're experiencing this now, your outcome is determined and we need to right. facilitate it. Okay. And you're that saying outcome. that's not the place to go. So the mm. anomaly position yeah. right. would be. One of not prevention and not one of facilitation, but one of caution. Mm-hmm. And so this is a what Mark Yarhouse calls a watchful waiting mm-hmm. approach. Mm-hmm. And so this is about being with in the journey. You're not jumping to conclusions. You might make some adjustments, mm-hmm. okay? So you're not trying to force it in one box or the other. You might allow for some you know, changes that aren't radical, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but kind of help in the process while we're in this watchful waiting time period. But you're trying to go with the least radical adjustments possible as long as you can. Because part of what you're trying to sort out is, is this going to sort itself out simply over time? Right. For most people, uh-huh. it doesn't end up going the direction that they're experiencing at, at the, the younger age. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's right. So, so, so there's something there's something to be said for just letting the the clock run. Watchful waiting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it, it's not in isolation. It's right. with. Right. See? Right. That's and good. and you're putting your emphasis on the identity in Christ that no matter where it's going to go, mm-hmm. that's, that's right. what you're going to need anyway. Right. right, right. Because that will de- that in the end helps to determine how the person deals with how the how they end up seeing themselves. It's the most that's important right. they can do, no matter what. Right, it really is. right. Really True of all of us. Yes, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Well. Wow. wow. <laughs> um, now, uh-huh. families are going to need a lot of support mm-hmm. yep. doing that, yeah. and churches are going to need to support families doing that, mm-hmm. and somebody's got to be supporting churches to be able to do all of that. Mm-hmm. So, because uh, it's not going to be the autopilot response. No, no. Every, every, everything is is working in in. Uh, I mean, you're being – everyone's being challenged to some degree because it's not it's not the norm. It's the anomaly. That's right. Yeah. Of course. Um, well, I, uh, we're out – we are out of time. There obviously is more we could discuss, but I think this has laid a good groundwork between this and the previous um, uh, part that we've done in, in thinking through this. Uh, there's no doubt this is – you know, the, the irony of this is, of course, 15 years ago, you probably wouldn't have talked about this at all. 
Right. And uh, um, and now it's something that everyone uh, senses uh, that they're challenged by. And thinking through this, trying to think through this both uh, theologically and and relationally is important. And particularly institutions like churches that face this situation within their community, and it's not it, it's it, it not it's arising for a reason. Um, uh, Need help, so I want to thank you all for helping us begin to think through. And this. thank you for bringing the topic to the table. Well, I'm right. glad to do it. <laughs> this is an important conversation. Yeah, well, we'll continue to we 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 have we as we do with several things, cut this from several different angles each time we come at it, and and I think that helps to give a fuller picture. But yeah, I still feel like we've just touched the top of the of the iceberg. Um, I want to thank you for joining us on the table. We hope this has been helpful. And if you have um, topics that you would like for us to consider, you can contact us at the table at dts.edu, and we will take them under consideration. We are a desire to be responsive to you as an audience, and we thank you for being a part of the table and hope you'll join us again soon. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode was brought to you in part by the Areopagus Podcast. Two clergy of different traditions, Father Andrew Stephen Damick, and Michael Landsman discuss encounters of historic Christianity with other religious traditions. How do we engage with those who believe differently? Listen wherever you get your podcasts.